Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Behind the Curtain, a show that profiles ordinary people who choose to be extraordinary. I'm your host, Kathy Barrett. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Our guest is Attica Woodson Scott, mother, activist, and politician who found her calling through having to endure and overcome a number of challenging life obstacles, which she used as inspiration to step into her role as a change maker. Born in Louisville, Kentucky, after receiving her master's in communications from the University of Tennessee, she began her career as a community organizer fighting for racial and economic justice and as executive director for Kentucky Jobs with Justice. She fought diligently for the dignity of working people to have job security with wages and benefits that could sustain them and their families. Ms. Scott graduated from the first class of Emerge Kentucky, an organization that prepares Democratic women to run for office and won a seat on the Louisville Metro City Council, where she helped to pass several important pieces of legislation. Ms. Scott also has received numerous accolades and awards, like the National Women of Vision Award given to her by Ms. Foundation for Women, She was featured as a Daughter of Greatness at the Muhammad Ali Cultural Center and named on Essence Magazine's list of hashtag woke 100 women in the U.S. In 2016, she ran for a seat in the Kentucky House, beating a 34-year white male Democratic incumbent to become the first African-American woman in 20 years to serve in the Kentucky General Assembly representing District 41. Now, this past July, Ms. Scott announced that she will be running for Congress to represent Kentucky's third congressional district, which is a seat currently being held by popular Congressman John Yarmouth, and he has just announced his retirement. So for more information about Ms. Scott and her campaign, you can go to AtticaForCongress.com and go to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Attica4KY. And you can also visit my website at GoBehindTheCurtain.com. So, Attica Scott, what a great honor to have you on the program today. Before we talk about your platform and your vision for Kentucky and America, for that matter, I found your life so inspiring, the story of your life. So can you share with us, please, the circumstances you faced that kind of molded you into the woman that you are today? I appreciate that that uh, question, Kathy, and I'm deeply honored to be um, on your show today. And there was a lot. And I will start with saying that my faith has been my foundation. It has shaped who I am today because I, I grew up in the Black Baptist Church and I grew up with a sense of commitment to equity and fairness and justice and freedom and what that looks like for people and how we get there. And along the way, I also had some some barriers that I faced and some challenges and some stumbles and falls. Um, I lived with a mother who struggled with addiction to alcohol and drugs and and who overdosed when I was a teenager. And um, that that was a lot. And, you know, both of my parents were physically abusive. That was a lot. And it's by no uh, easy means that I, I find myself here today to be able to say to young people, uh, that that it may not seem like it today, but there is a path forward. There is a way forward. Hold on tight. Hold on. Hold on. Because uh, life will get better. And I am so grateful that I had uh, family members and 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 people in in church and at school 
um, who wrap me in their arms of love and support uh, to help me to, to become the person that I am today. You know, it's really interesting because instead of allowing, you know, these insurmountable obstacles really that you face to overwhelm you, you kind of overcame these hardships and then used your life experiences as a channel of inspiration. So what gave you that awareness to process life in that very positive way? Well, and I will say, Kathy, it wasn't easy at all. Um, Really hard. I grew up uh, in poverty in the projects of of Beach Terrace here in Louisville, and so I I had er every barrier erected in front of me. And I also know that my parents wanted something else for me, something that they couldn't necessarily give to me, provide for me themselves, but they knew there was something else for me. And so that's why they named me after the prison in upstate New York. They named me Attica. I was born a few months after the 1971 uh, uh, uprising of um, Mm -hmm. mostly black and Latinx and indigenous uh, people who were incarcerated. And so knowing that I had a name that um, was given to me because there was something else meant for me was also a, a guiding light for me. Knowing that I was able to to call on the support that I needed when I needed them made a difference as well. That it was never about any, it was never only about what I had within me, the, the strength that I had and possessed within me, but it was also about who were the people who were around me, who were mm-hmm. holding me up, who were, you know, trying to open doors and hold them open um, so that I can make a way and hold doors open for other people who came after me. So, so I have to give all the love to the amazing um, folks who were um, around me as a child and as a young adult and even today. There's, it's very important for each of us to kind of, you know, pay attention to the lights that are in all of our lives. You know, there are always like these, I call them human angels that are there to lift us up when mm-hmm. we need lifting. Many times when you're kind of trapped into this path of just one obstacle hitting you after another, it's very hard to see that. So having you on the program today and having you share this very personal story is so important to people. And I, I thank you for being so graceful to, uh, to allow us into your life in this way. So moving on to the platform now, because you're running for Congress, congratulations. The label progressive, when it comes to politics, it seems to scare a lot of people in particular. So how do you plan to change minds and get people to see that there's nothing to fear? Well, and you know, people just, sometimes people can't help themselves. They love to put labels on people. And um, and you and I know, particularly as as um, women, people always are putting labels on us. Um, yeah. they, can't, they just can't seem to help themselves. And so when I talk about um, what progressivism is, what it means to be a progressive, what I'm saying is I want us to progress. I want us to move forward forward. I want us to break down and eliminate those barriers that were designed for my failure um, and designed for me to barely survive, let alone thrive. I want us to make sure that we are intentional in uh, providing space and opportunities for people who are intentionally left behind and left out, oppressed and marginalized. Progress and being a progressive um, for me means that I am not interested in maintaining the establishment or the status quo. I am not here for any political party's comfort. I am not here for any institution or systems or structures comfort because that comfort has meant that many people that I know and love and work with and worship with and live around and raise my kids with um, 
were also the very same people who didn't get the opportunities that so many people around us um, have been able to have. So for me, being a, being a progressive means that um, I acknowledge that the systems under which we operate are flawed inherently. Mm-hmm. Most of them were not created for justice in mind and that we have to do everything we can to dismantle those systems that are not working because once we dismantle them and reimagine and rebuild something different, all of us will be better off for it, every single one of us our system truly is flawed. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Kentucky because according to U.S. World and News Magazine, the 2021 issue, Kentucky ranks 41 out of 50 states. Let's start mm-hmm. with health care. What do you feel about the health care situation in Kentucky? How can they improve it? Why is that number so low? What's not happening there that needs to happen? Well, you know, it's such a, a, a timely conversation for many reasons. One of them is um, you know, I was just uh, part of an announcement from the University of Louisville Health System on a new initiative to provide uh, tuition benefit assistance for employees and employees' families of the University of Louisville's health system. That is going to make a huge difference um, for folks in Kentucky to be able to pursue their education and, and uh, provide an opportunity for their children to pursue their education without um, uh, stressing out of, over the burden of uh, tuition costs. Mm-hmm. I know what it was like to, for decades, have uh, student loan debt over my head. I didn't pay off my student loans until September 2021, so uh, less than a year ago. And I don't want that, that burden for other people. I also know, though, Kathy, that we've got to address the real, some of the real issues that are plaguing our commonwealth. In Kentucky and in Louisville, where I live, black women are three to four times more likely to die in childbirth than white women, and yet the state legislature has chosen time and time again to do absolutely nothing about that reality. And so we cannot expect different health outcomes if we don't act differently and if we don't say there's a crisis here that we have to address. We can also take action on making sure that we provide uh, Medicaid uh, uh, reimbursement services for, for doula services. And we can make sure that uh, people who are incarcerated have uh, midwifery and doula support services. We can make sure that in our rural communities we are doing everything that it takes to recruit and retain medical professionals, that we cannot leave any part of our commonwealth behind. We have a lot of work to do, Kathy, and I'm built for this work, and I know that so many uh, people in Kentucky are ready for us to look at not only the healthcare system and access and uh, costs, but are also looking at what are the barriers to uh, health and wellness across our state. That's excellent. I'm glad there's going to be some support there, and that's, uh, that's wonderful news. But you mentioned communities of color faced higher rates of COVID, I'm talking about, and that um, you feel that they were put to the back of the line in vaccine rollout. Can you explain a little bit more what you mean by that? Certainly, Kathy. So for nearly a decade, I, I worked in public health at mm-hmm. County Health Rankings and Roadmaps. It's a, a project of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And I, and I was there at the height of the pandemic. And one of the things that I would tell you that happened in Louisville and happened in yeah. Kentucky is that um, when COVID first hit us, it disproportionately impacted black folks and Latinx folks and indigenous folks, and our systems were not ready for that. They were not prepared for that. They did not know how to respond because, again, we'd always been left out 
and left behind anyway. We had this this history of medical apartheid um, and and the fact that um, our issues are often not taken seriously uh, as black folks and other people of color. So we had that disproportionate impact. And then you layer on top of that the vaccine rollout, and we saw it everywhere, including, right, here in Louisville and right here in Kentucky, that with the vaccine rollout, um, initially many people that I serve um, who were um, uh, under the age of uh, 65, for example, were not eligible for the vaccine. And, Kathy, I just have to say, in the neighborhoods uh, where I live and the neighborhoods that I serve that are predominantly black, we don't have a life expectancy uh, beyond the age of 64. So that left out a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the disparities that I'm I'm talking about. But I'm also talking about where um, access to uh, testing was made available early on and where access to the vaccines uh, were made available early on. And it took a while for that access for both testing and the vaccine to be made readily available in predominantly black and, and neighborhoods of color in Louisville and across Kentucky. Got it. Wow. And so I understand that you were also fighting for that as well all along to to get the rollout to happen in a lot of the local churches, uh, which would, you know, give people of color more access to the vaccine. I'm I'm glad that it it got done. And how are things now? How are the rates now in Kentucky? You know, thank goodness the the numbers are beginning to go down, but I want people to remain vigilant, Kathy. We cannot Mm -hmm. take that for granted because um, we know that, from the experience we've had in the past two years, that there could be another variant. There could be another spike. And and so that means we have to remain vigilant. We have to keep uh, wearing our masks. We have to continue to physically distance. We have to continue to use hand sanitizer. We have to continue to be smart and make wise decisions and be intelligent about the fact that we're still in the midst of a global pandemic, even as we see our numbers decline. Yes, I agree with you wholeheartedly. There's so much I want to cover. There's 51% eligible women out of the, what is it, 4.5 million people in Kentucky. And 65% of those want all access to reproductive rights available. So why are these females voting mostly Republican? So many people want the choice to make their own decisions about their bodies. Being from the inside, can you share with us where you think this is going? That is such a good question, Kathy, because um, it's perplexing. And it's perplexing why some of those same women um, will continue to vote for men who have not um, historically centered the the needs uh, around reproductive health and reproductive freedom and reproductive justice and abortion access. And while I cannot speak for women who choose to um, continue to vote for people who actually don't believe in abortion access, who don't recognize that um, healthcare is a human right and abortion is healthcare, I will say this uh, for Kentucky, that we have so many people, uh, women in rural areas and urban areas and suburban areas who are using their voice, who are owning their power and speaking out and saying we we demand um, to continue to have access to abortion. You may be aware, Kathy, we have a ballot initiative in November here in Kentucky that um, 
poses the question to Kentuckians that should uh, Roe v. Wade be overturned, uh, do we want to allow that to be overturned here in Kentucky? And um, we, we need to be loud about that. We, folks um, are focusing on, as they should, on states like Mississippi and Texas, but I want them to know that right here in Kentucky, we literally have a ballot initiative that folks will be voting on. So my, my hope is that wiser minds will prevail and that more people across the Commonwealth will recognize that we cannot take away this uh, health care access from anyone in our Commonwealth um, because of ignorance, because of playing to a, a base of, of a certain political uh, ideology or um, or, or because we, we want to continue to allow people, particularly uh, men, to have power, domination, and control over our bodies. Excellent. There's so many topics that I could do, like a two-hour show with you. One thing that was troubling is education came in 36. And as mm-hmm. an educator yourself, let's see, 4.2% uh, have less than a high school education, 8% some high school, no diploma. high school graduate or equivalency, 22 some college, 8.2 associate's degree, 14.1 bachelor's, and 9% uh, graduate or professional degree. So the the 45% of people have, you know, a high school education or lower. With the Green Deal, hopefully you're going to get more people excited about that, Uh, what kind of Mm -hmm. training will be available to this group of people that have this kind of education so that they can be elevated to participate in the jobs like the new Ford electric battery plant that there is being built in Kentucky now. So I appreciate the question, and as you said, particularly as an educator, I've taught at Bellarmine University here and Jefferson Community and Technical College, so I've had the opportunity to see different kinds of higher education. My father went to Aaron's Trade School here in Jefferson County, so I understand from life experience how important it is to make sure that we have opportunities for people along the spectrum of education and um, experience and expertise. What I first I want to acknowledge that it has been a failure of the legislature to fully fund public education. So when we look at the numbers of uh, educational attainment, we also have to acknowledge that we've. Uh, set up our schools for failure by not fully funding and supporting our schools, by attacking teacher pensions, um, by doing almost everything uh, possible to begin to uh, destabilize the foundation of public education in Kentucky. And so that's been happening for a while. So, of course, um, the impact is going to be felt on the very uh, young people we're supposed to be serving. But what I will say about the Green New Deal is that it is a package of bills that are designed to be job creators wherever you are along the spectrum, uh, whether it is uh, the, the, the spectrum of uh, focusing on remediating land that may have been, you know, brownfield, contaminated uh, land, or maybe it's on the spectrum of um, building uh, green uh, housing and, and green uh, buildings um, for this, this green economy that we're, we're moving toward. Or maybe it's a, a job in uh, the field of, of science or technology or engineering or art or math where you're really looking at um, how do we address the impacts of uh, climate change and climate disasters. We know 
uh, from experience right here in Kentucky in December in western Kentucky, we had a climate disaster with the, the tornadoes that hit. Um, we need to make sure we have folks who are ready um, and trained for the recovery uh, jobs that exist, right? We need lots of people for recovery um, yes. uh, jobs, whether it's cleanup or, uh, you know, getting people back into housing. So, Kathy, I just want to say I, I, I believe wholeheartedly that the package of bills that come with the Green New Deal are absolutely designed for people in Kentucky who um, are looking for uh, what's next after coal, for example. You know, we, as we right. begin to see uh, the coal industry decline, do we have our Appalachian neighbors ready um, uh, for that next set of jobs that are coming that are more uh, community friendly, that are, that are more healthy, um, that are really about building uh, uh, communities and making sure that people thrive? So talking about pollution, 80 illegal dumps in 18 counties across the Commonwealth, many of the 100 factories that are up and running in Kentucky are located along the Ohio River, and that has led to half of all the public drinking water systems tested in report from the Kentucky Energy and Environment Cabinet to have evidence of PFAS contamination, chemicals called forever chemicals, known to increase the risk of cancer and other health issues. Then Governor Bashir announces uh, just recently, I think it was 2-4, that he's awarding $995,000 in grants to clean up 80 illegal dump sites. And I'm like, that's not even enough to clean up one, yet alone 80. I mean, great, you have close to a million dollars. But then the Department mm-hmm. of Interior this year announced that they're giving Kentucky $104 million to cap some of the 14,000 orphan wells, which are wells that no longer are in operation, and they have no solvent owner of record. Now, I Ooh. cannot believe this. How does an orphan well even come about? And how can there be so many no owners of records like this? And how is all this money to clean up these sites being monitored? And who would that money be monitored by? Kathy, and if I um, miss any of... Um of the questions that were there, please do come back around to them for me. I will definitely say that I understand completely how these orphan wells can exist because I've been a champion from uh, my time on Louisville Metro Council, local government, to today as a state rep, around addressing the issue of abandoned and vacant properties. And to me, those are connected because what I found in, in my leadership role as uh, chair of the uh, Abandoned and Vacant Properties Committee on Louisville Metro Council is that there has been little to no accountability um, when it comes to owners of, of buildings. And I will argue that that's the same with these wells, that over the, the decades, um, there sadly, we know that cronyism exists. We know that the good old boy network exists. We know that people will turn their eye away from their friend um, who may be uh, have may have been an owner of uh, these wells and allow them to just drift away um, without there being any noise or any paperwork or anything um, to track where these owners have gone and so then we're left as a commonwealth with the responsibility of these wells so i'm I'm not surprised at all because there's so many similarities in that exact thing happening with uh, the issue of abandoned and vacant properties and communities. The other thing I will say is mm-hmm. that um, I want to give all love to uh, former Congresswoman uh, Deb Holland, Secretary of the Interior, first uh, Indigenous person in that role, um, yes. because 
the vision that she brings to that role is exactly what you're talking about, where she is clear that states like Kentucky need and deserve additional support when it comes to environmental issues. So all love to her. And, and, and then I will also say, uh, Kathy, that I signed on as a co-sponsor uh, with State Representative Numa Kulkarni as the primary sponsor on uh, legislation to address uh, these forever chemicals because we have to do something. We can't sit on our hands. We have the political power. What's missing is the political will to address uh, chemical issues, chemical disasters, um, environmental justice issues. The other thing I will say, because I, I, I really want your, your uh, uh, listeners to know this, I grew up in and live and represent an area where there are 19 chemical companies along what is called the Rubber Town Corridor. And we have had uh, chemical disasters. You've had workers who died in explosions. We've had uh, neighborhoods where people had to shelter in place. My kids had to shelter in place with my neighbor um, until, you know, I could get off of work and get to them safely. That's terrifying. And we continue, um, we've done some work, I will say, in Louisville, but we, we also um, have more work to do so that we don't allow these kinds of disasters to continue. Because it has to be impacting the health of the people there. And it's ironic that one of the number one industries is healthcare in Kentucky. <laughs> well, there's no one. Yes. Do you know what I'm saying? It's just, yes. you know, there's an easy way to, to start to begin or, or to, to solve the problem is to start, you know, uh, cleaning up these sites and then going in a different direction, as you say, with the Green Deal. And, and Kathy, didn't the, the, oh, and if I may, Kathy, I just I also want folks to know that um, we are still trying to get clean bathing and drinking water to places like Knox and Martin County, Kentucky, and so. Um, you know, we, we have to lift up places like Flint, Michigan. We have to lift up places like Martin County, Kentucky, because um, money is important, yes, as is accountability, though, as well oh, yeah. for these companies that have polluted water streams. Yes, and it's I agree with you 100% accountability. And even with, you know, uh, Michigan, not to get into a different state's uh, issues, but we're all the same, really, when we're fighting this kind of battle. Mm -hmm. There has to be accountability with politicians as well, right? You can't have, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, turn kind of the other cheek when some of these cronies are dumping toxic uh, poisons into your state. Mm. Something has to change and, you know, has to change very soon. The other thing, there's two things I really want to go over in addition to this. Many more things, but let's focus on two so I don't keep you too long because I know you're a a woman on the go. There are those who wish to whitewash our history and tell a version of it that spares white children from hearing about the harsh reality of slavery and how we have, and in my opinion, being white, continue to oppress people of color and the poor. So how do you, as an educator, feel we can transform this mindset, the racial divide and political divide that exists in this country. Oh, Kathy, I am so inspired and motivated by our young people because, you know, I'm, I'm sure you know just as well as I do uh, that young people are hungry for and thirsting for an accurate teaching of history. They want to know 
um, where they've come from so that they can have an idea of how to be different uh, as we move forward. In fact, um, not too long um, uh, after we end uh, this conversation, I'll be talking to a group of young people. And I do that, you know, every couple of days. I'm talking to young people in, in elementary, middle, high school, college, university settings. Uh, and, and I will also say that uh, they are much better people than, than we and, and the generations after us in the sense that in, in terms of acknowledging that racism exists, acknowledging that genocide has taken place in this country and not running away from it. It's the adults who are attacking an accurate teaching of history. And as someone yeah. who has taught um, at the collegiate level, I, I'm very disappointed in the adults who are taking this path because they are denying their children, our children, an opportunity to be even better people. We have to know our, our history in order to not make the same mistakes. And so I will say, tang you know, um, uh, tangibly what I have done is I've had high school students from Louisville who come to me and ask me to file legislation to expand the teaching of black and indigenous history in our public schools across Kentucky. I've worked with those high school students for three years now to try to get that bill heard in the state legislature. Hasn't happened yet. And then uh, in 2021, uh, long before this whole anti-critical race theory uh, policy movement started, I had students who came to me and asked if I would file a bill to teach uh, the history of racism explicitly in our public schools, and I worked with them to file that piece of legislation. And so now we find ourselves in Kentucky with three so-called anti-critical race theory bills, two in the House and two in the Senate, which absolutely come from a place of ignorance because critical race theory is not something that's taught in K-12 anyway. It's, it's a legal uh, uh, doctrine. And so I'm disappointed, Kathy, as an educator, that people are choosing to be, that adults are choosing to be so willfully ignorant, but I'm also inspired and hopeful by the young people who have shown me that they are interested in a different path forward. That's, that's really great to hear. And, you know, we know from uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and all the tragedies that happened, you know, over the last several months that when you look out and into the crowd, the crowd is mixed. There's a, a well-rounded group young people. So I agree with you. I just wish that we could teach some of these old dogs new tricks. It's, it's, very, it's very frustrating. So last but not mm -hmm. least, what is happening in Kentucky concerning the closing of poll places and redistricting? Because this is something that's happening. A voter suppression is happening across our country, and we need to address that at a loud volume as well. Yes, and voter suppression is real everywhere, including right here in Kentucky. We saw with the 2020 elections, we, we pushed our primary uh, from May to June because of COVID and wanting to, to uh, take some steps to uh, address the, the difficulty um, that, that COVID was going to present for some people to vote. But then we also saw that a number of polling loca locations were closed, and then you had hundreds of people trying to get to one big location in Louisville, for example. I'm going to speak on Louisville because that's where I live. And uh, then they had that polling location close its door uh, and lock the doors in people's faces just as they were standing outside um, as polls closed. But because that was the one main location people could get to, there were lines and lines of cars trying to park to vote. And, and a judge had to uh, tell the, the clerk's office, open those doors and let people vote. 
And so, yes, and so we're working now, working hard to make sure that that is not repeated this year uh, in 2022 with our May primary, uh, that that we don't have um, numerous polling locations closed and then people relegated to a very few locations and then having something similar happen. Because we're, we're talking about people who work and uh, oftentimes are not able to uh, get off of work to go vote. And so they get off of work at 5 o'clock, the polling places close at 6, and they're in, they're in the mad dash in rush hour trying to get there. So doing the work now, try to make sure that doesn't happen. But I will say, Kathy, when it comes to uh, redistricting, we have hyper and extreme partisan gerrymandering happening in Kentucky. We mm-hmm. have uh, real political uh, uh, redlining happening here in Kentucky, and I have been a victim of that. The district that I represent as a state legislator, uh, District uh-huh. 41, uh, has was uh, mostly the east end to the west end of Louisville. The east end is predominantly white and uh, a lot of wealthy areas. West end, predominantly black. Uh, some wealth, but a lot of low to moderate income neighborhoods and, and some uh, neighborhoods that, that have uh, extreme poverty. And the uh, supermajority GOP decided to take away all of the predominantly black part of my district. They took it away. I am no longer even in the district that I represent. Had I been running for reelection, I would not be able to run. And they've only put it now in a predominantly white part of the city. If, keep in mind, Kathy, the, when that information came out and I shared it publicly, the majority yeah. of the people who responded in disgust were the white people in my district, the white hmm. people who lived in the East End who said, you've been a wonderful representative to us, and I cannot believe that they have done this. So, yes, we are experiencing that right here in Kentucky. Well, listen, I can tell that you're a woman that delivers for everybody. Your actions speak to that. I really enjoyed having you on the program. Before we close, is there anything you would like to share with our listeners that we haven't covered? Definitely, Kathy, and I appreciate you. I I want folks to know that uh, it is an absolute honor for me to be a public servant, and I believe in uh, service and leadership without boundaries and without borders. And that's why, although I'm a state representative for Kentucky House District 41, I'm looking out for everybody in Louisville and across the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And quite honestly, I've shown up in a lot of places across this country to stand with people when they were crying out for justice. And that is the kind of leadership that we need. We cannot have leadership that only stays in its one place and doesn't understand how we are all deeply connected because we are all connected, Kathy. And and while, you know, I push back on the language around we're all in this together because we're, you know, we're different. We are all really different and not necessarily in things uh, together, but we are all connected and we can all yeah. find a path forward together. And so that's what I want to leave folks with. I'm excited about this race for Congress because I want to take that same energy to Washington, D.C., because I believe that we deserve to have leaders who think about us all the time and who are doing the work to uplift everyone. It has been such an honor to have you on the program, and I wish you the best of luck in your run for Congress. And you have an open invitation to return to the show, and I hope you will return because it's just been a joy to have you. And thank you for the work that you do. We're very lucky to have you. Go to AtticaForCongress.com. You can also find her on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Attica4KY. Visit the show's website at GoBehindTheCurtain.com to learn much more about Attica Scott and about our show. I want to thank you listeners for 
tuning in to Behind the Curtain. I hope you enjoyed our program today. This is a pivotal midterm for our country. There is voter suppression going on across this nation, people. You have to use your voice and you have to use your vote. So please get out and do that. I'm sending a virtual hug out to each and every one of you. Be safe, be kind, be loved, especially today. And until next time, peace, everybody.